Our great and awesome Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that we have the privilege of calling you our Father. Thank you for Christ through whom we have forgiveness of sins, in whom we are unified to you the Father. And how we rejoice in the reality that you have come to dwell in us through your Spirit. And so we pray as we go about this day that there might be a heart of worship, of joy in you, of love for you, of trust in you, of submission to you, and a desire to obey you. Father, help us to grow in our understanding of your word, that we might continue to submit our perspective of reality and our understanding of your word to what is true. Help us by your spirit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so for the last um, two weeks, we have spent some time looking at um, the just briefly surveying issues of the sovereignty of God. Uh, initially, when I kind of mapped out um, the scope and sequence for this summer class, I, I had many more lessons on the sovereignty of God, and then I realized maybe there would be some other things you would be more interested in. Um, to reason through, like if God is sovereign, why pray, and questions like that. And um, it is the way it is, but I regret that we weren't able to spend more time just as a group of believers, just going through scripture and going chapter after chapter after chapter to feel the, as it were, the drumbeat of God's declaration of his sovereign rule in all of his world. It is, um, it is, I think, a, a, a force that is very clear in the text. And so time and time again, God is declaring, I am king. I have done this. I am fulfilling my purposes. You should obey me. I am God. I have done this. I have declared. I have fulfilled. I predict. I have done this. It's just over and over and over again. Um, so we've been thinking these last two weeks um, in just super survey form of God's sovereignty he, de- he reveals his sovereignty in creation. He decides to create. He does. Uh, we see his sovereignty worked out um, in the, the way this world functions, uh, the, the way nature functions, um, where do storms come from, um, why does anything happen in this world, in the, in the natural world. We can say these are from the hand of God. And then last week, as Nathan just quickly overviewed, uh, we we see God's ruling in nations. He sets up nations. Uh, he judges the nations he set up for his purposes. Um, and then we see the, the ultimate end uh, of God's sovereign rule where uh, in, in, at his point, in his timing, according to his purposes, the sins will come to, a, as it were, um, a crescendo and God will judge at the point he decides to judge. He will eternally condemn those who have rejected him, and he will recreate this world. He will glorify those who put their faith in Christ, those who have trusted in him. And then for all eternity, God will rule his world on earth. In summary, um, there, are, there are lots of things that are caught up in that, and lots of, we might say, a lot of theological um, 
streams we could pursue. So I thought what would be helpful would be to just look at three questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that pulls together in such helpful and succinct ways these doctrines of um, God's sovereignty that we've been talking about. Question seven says, what are the decrees of God? We don't usually use that term. I think it's a helpful term to summarize what we've been talking about. But the answer here is the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Um, If you're, as I read this, I I hear particularly Ephesians 1 reverberating through through these statements. So the decrees of God, uh, a a way to speak of um, that... um, we might say vision, to use a, a term of the, as God sees and purposes to do something, he will decree certain things to happen. Why does he decree that? He decrees those things to happen according to his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will. Why does he do this? For his own glory. Uh, and so he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Number eight, how doth God execute his decrees? He executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So God decides to create, and he does, unconstrained, unforced. Everything he created was according to his purposes and conformity to his nature. Um, He creates everything, and so he, as it were, initiates through that act of creation, and then he is working out his decree within the created order, that is through providence. So next question is what, um, actually no, I skipped a few. Uh, Question 11 is what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So two things happening here, uh, or a number of things. Preserving and governing. Um, By the will of God, things exist, By the will of God, they continue to exist. Um, We'll look at Colossians 1 uh, later on this morning. So by God's will, they come into being, and our beingness, the beingness of all creation, continues by his will. It's not like God wound up the clock, set it on the proverbial countertop, and sat back. He has created the world, and as much as we can study the nature of reality, atoms, subatomic particles, as much as we can look at light, as much as we can think about the dimensionality of space and gravity, black holes, whatever, we are observing the way nature is functioning, but we are not observing the ultimate cause of the existence of anything. The ultimate cause of the existence of everything is that God continues to preserve their existence, having created. Um, So there's a preserving, there's a governing. He is exercising his kingly sovereign rule over all things, both inanimate, both animate creatures, and particularly their actions. So... It's not, we might say, a generic rule. God rules somehow generally, but that rule is in particular in the life of creatures. So I just 
give those summary statements um, to reflect, summarize the overwhelming witness of Scripture that God is the creator of all, the sovereign over all of creation. So today I want to transition to reflect upon how we are created to exist in light of God's sovereignty. God creates, He is a kind of God, He relates to His world a certain way, how ought we to respond? And the answer is we are created to worship. I think this is a helpful broad category as we go in to reflect a little more on our relationship with God. How do we as volitional beings made in God's image live in this world and relate to him, the sovereign God, who has decreed all things that come to pass to come to pass? So this word worship, I think, is helpful because it kind of catches up a number of very important words that, that speak of how we function as people in God's world. So it catches up together thoughts of faith, of trust, of love, of obedience, of glorifying God. So this word worship is, is a full and robust and rich word. True worship is about the heart. True worship is about the things we do. There's not a disconnect. Genuine faith is demonstrated in the works that we do. We glorify God, not merely with word, but we glorify God in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever it is. So this word worship, I think, kind of captures um, all these ideas together. And so what I'd like to do is look at a few passages that relate this word or this concept of worship to the right response we should have to God's sovereignty over all things and his providence in creation. You're probably familiar with these passages, but let's firstly go to Job chapter 42. Job has suffered greatly, and he is trying to figure out why. What is the, we might say, what is the mechanism of my suffering? Where did this come from? What causes this? God, what are you doing? Where are you in this? And then God appears to Job, and God does not answer Job's question, but God declares his sovereign rule over all things. Job, who are you? Did you create? Do you know everything? Do you supply? Do you provide? Are you ruling in even the smallest or greatest of things? And God kind of rolls out some examples in creation and say, Job, compare yourself to this large animal or beast or situation in this world. Job, you can't even do anything like that, much less be on my level as the one who created that thing. And so we get to the end of Job. I think you might. Did you read this last week, Nathan? So uh, great. We're going to read it again. And, and Job responds to the Lord. And here is Job's response. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God decrees. He does. Um, he he quotes here some of God's questioning of him. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And here's Job's response. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He quotes again from God. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Here's Job's response. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here is a posture of worship. Here is, here is not the posture of, I want to, um, God, I'm not satisfied with your explanation. I want more details here. Job 
is not satisfied in all of his questions. But the thing that is most satisfying is that Job comes to the place of submission to who God is and his sovereign rule over all of creation. And it's a submission of worship. It's not a submission that comes through full understanding. It's a submission that comes through partial understanding of who God is. But it's a submission that says, you are God and I am not. I'm going to stop questioning you. I will submit to what you have said to me. I want to go to Romans 11 and 33. In this section in Romans, Paul is dealing with the issue of um, what about the people of Israel? Why has there been so many who have rejected Yahweh, the covenant God? And what of God's covenant then? And so Paul is developing these issues. And in summary, we come in Romans 11 and verse 33. His Here's Paul's summary. Um, we, we read a little from chapter 11 um, three or four weeks ago. Um, and Paul doesn't there, he, he, even there he doesn't alter, offer a solution. He just says, what right do you have to ask that question? And so we come um, in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now the word worship doesn't appear here, but this is the heart of worship. This is the expression of worship. This is the ultimate response to hard things. Paul has given some explanation. But the explanation he's he's given doesn't satisfy every one of our questions and so Paul concludes here not that worship comes out of a comprehensive knowledge of God but worship comes out of a submission we read this 33 I want to read this again how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways we are, we are wanting to understand the things God has revealed. We want to submit to the ways he talks about who he is and how he works in this world. But we will never get to this place, I don't believe, on this side of heaven, and I don't believe on the other side of heaven either. We will never get to the place of going, okay, God, I've, I've contained you. I have knowledge of all that you do and all that you are, and it all makes sense to me. To get to that place would be to get to the place of infinite wisdom and knowledge. And we don't get there. I'm sure we'll have a whole lot more knowledge and a whole lot more understanding. And our worship will be more intense than we can even imagine as we behold the glories of God and see him and know him in ways that we've never known him before. But forever and ever and ever, we will be worshiping at the throne of the eternal sovereign God And we will be submitting to his glory and to his perfections and to his knowledge and to his holiness and to all of his purposes that he has decreed forever and ever. And we will declare how unsearchable are his judgments and his scrutable, his ways. Our goal is not to finally search out all of God's judgments. Our goal is not to... Now, what's the antonym of inscrutable? Scrutalize? I don't know. There's no word. 
um, get to the place of not viewing God's ways of, as inscrutable. Knowledge. That is not our goal. If that is our goal, we will do theology badly. Our goal is that we seek to know who God is insofar as he's revealed himself. To seek to understand his statements and to submit to those statements in the ways that he has revealed them. And what is the ultimate response? The ultimate response is a response of worship. God's sovereign rule over his creation demands worship. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4 at the end, verse 11. The uh, 24 elders fall down, they worship. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So you can see again, there's this direct connection. God is worthy of all worship because he is the creator. He is the sovereign one over all things. So there's a a link we see here between the glory of God and his sovereign rule in creation. God manifests something of his glory in his creating, in his ruling over creation. And worship is the right response to that. And as, as we think about that, I just want you to think about the profound sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They turned from trusting the word of God. They turned from loving him as their glorious creator. And they turned from worshiping the sovereign rule of their creator. And they turned and sought in creation what could only be found in God. They rejected the sovereign rule of God. They rejected his trustworthiness and faithfulness. So I want to turn now to Romans chapter 1. So we're still on this theme of worship. I want to see how um, Paul addresses this theme of worship, this creaturely um, existence we have. We are worshipers. And as we look at Romans chapter 1, we'll, we'll begin in verse 18. I want you to note something very important. That And this is, this is something that we don't have a choice about. We don't have a choice not to worship. We are, as I read scripture, constitutionally incapable of worshipping. We are created as worshippers. It's a question of what do we worship. So, there, so even as we think about our nature as people made in God's Uh, in his image, living in his world, we are constrained in the kind of choices that we can make. I said again, we don't have a choice not to worship. It is worshiping God or worshiping creation. So let's look at Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to do the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worshipping God, the creator, or worshipping creation in some way. We're all worshippers. Every human being is a worshipper. It's just a matter of what we orient our hearts towards. We see this reflected in Luke uh, 16. Jesus is teaching here and and, uh, he is reflecting this reality that we are inescapably moral beings living in this world in moral ways, um, either worshipping the creator or worshipping the creation, either, either loving God, trusting God, submitting to God, seeking blessing from God, or worshipping creation, loving creation, seeking the things that we think creation will bring us. So Matthew, um, Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is ultimate allegiance here. Your ultimate, your ultimate allegiance is either to God or to the example here is to money. Um, Jesus is reflecting this reality. He doesn't say your ultimate allegiance is to God or nothing. We're allegiance in kind of people. We're always giving our allegiance, our submission, our love to something or someone. And it's either the creator or it's the creation. Go to John chapter 8. John 8 and 42. John 8 and 42. Again, we see Jesus confronting the unbelief of religious leaders. And, And this is what makes this section like so astounding. He is telling the religious leaders who, who they're saying, we don't, we're not buying into what you're saying, Jesus, but we are children of Adam, Ad, uh, Abraham. Abraham is our father. Our allegiance is to Abraham. That's what they're saying. And Jesus responds and says, you are utterly self-deceived. So John eight forty two. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So here again, we see this clear. Why do they reject Jesus? It's not because they just don't believe in anything. The alternative to submitting to the one true God is submitting to something else, giving your allegiance to someone else or something else. It's an either or here. And so this... This pattern we see, um, I'm just giving a few paces here in the New Testament, um, but this is the theme of Scripture. 
that we are always worshiping, we're always loving, we're always trusting. It's just a matter of what it is we are loving and trusting and worshiping. One passage that stands out in my mind, maybe this is buzzing in your mind as well, Joshua 24. Well, we're going to get to Joshua 24 by the end of the year as we go through Joshua on Sunday mornings, but we're kind of jumping ahead here. In Joshua 24, this is at the end of Joshua's life, he's reviewing for the people of Israel what God has done for them and what their response to him should be. And he challenges the people at the end of their, uh, his life. So Joshua 24 and verse 6. This is God speaking, God's perspective. I'm just going to read a few phrases through a number of verses because I want you to hear the theme without taking time to read every word. So verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots. Um, down in verse 10. At the end of verse 10. So I delivered you out of his hand, out of Balaam's hand. Down in verse 11. At the end of verse 11. And I gave them into your hand. And uh, verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And then looking at verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Notice the link here again between God's work, God's sovereign rule, God's work of providence. What's the response to be? It's to be a response of fear, a response of worship, of submission and trust. Now, therefore, verse 14, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So again, there's this, there's this contrast. Joshua is recognizing that humans are religious people. We're, we're worshipers. Sometimes it's overtly religious and sometimes it's not overtly religious. But whatever it is, our heart's orientation is either in submission and worship to the sovereign creator of all or oriented towards creation. One other passage, um, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 23, and here we're just looking at um, a snapshot into the spiritual life of Moses and what was going on inside his heart. Again, this theme of that response of worship, one or the other. So Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith... Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The, the phrase in this section um, that that I think is, um, that I want us to reflect on, is verse 26. He considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to 
the reward. There's his orientation. It's a choice. Submission to God, faith in God, looking to God for blessing, looking to God for the fulfillment of promises, to the creator, or looking to creation. And Moses made the right choice. He responded with a heart of true worship rather than rebellious false worship. So what is the response that we're to have to the sovereign God? It is to be a response of worship. And again, throughout that, I I want to emphasize the fact that we don't have a choice not to worship. There, There is some constraint in the choices that we have in front of us. I want to move and so so as we think about human choice, I think it's important that we frame the discussion of human choice um, in this category of response to God, response to the sovereign God. We, we frame it in a category of worship. Whatever our discussion about human choice is, it's in this context as worshipers in responding to our responding to God and our view of God and our interactions with the world. And so as we think, um, as we move forward in the next few minutes and, and we give our attention a little more to the discussion of human volition, human choice, as a way in, worship is helpful and I want to continue to have Scripture kind of framing the way we think about this. And so I, I want us to look at Scripture and see how does Scripture Um, guide us to talk about these things. So I want us to be attentive to the way Scripture speaks. There are different ways we might conceive of the nature of choice. Um, Some maybe more accurately, some less accurately. Some may be more experiential, some may be more philosophical and philosophically reflective. And there there are good things about thinking carefully. But as we think about carefully, we always need to be careful in that careful thinking that we're having Scripture shape the way we engage in the discussion. So whatever we say about the issue of choice, as I was emphasizing just before, one thing we can't say is that we have the choice to not worship. We're constitutionally incapable of not worshipping. There's not some zone of spiritual neutrality. They're the people who love God and submit to him. They're the people in rebellion against him. And then there's neutrality. We don't find that in scripture anywhere. We don't have that choice. As we looked at Romans 8, oh, sorry, John 8, 42. Um, let's just go back there for a moment. And think about how Jesus views the moral accountability um, of the religious leaders. Um, Verse 43, why do they not understand? Because they cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, He is a murderer. Um. He does not stand in the truth. Verse 42, sorry, 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. 
and one other place here. Of, yeah, beginning of verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That there's their will. That's what they want to do. That's what they choose to do. That is the way they are functioning. And Jesus holds them utterly accountable for those choices that they have made as they live out the desires of their will. And as we read this passage, we see that they don't have the understanding to receive God's words. Why? Because they're of their father, the devil, and they're doing the desires of their father. So, as we think about this word of choice and free choice and how we think about it, or the freedom to choose, I think it's appropriate as we look at John 8 to, to, to call... The religious, to speak of the religious leader's choice as a free choice. That is, it is morally accountable. They are morally accountable for the choices that they have made, and they've made those choices out of their will. Or to say it another way, their choice is not constrained. They're not choosing this against their desires. They're choosing it because they do desire this. They want to do this. They They have a heart to submit to their father, the devil. Their choice is the expression of their will. However, one of the debates um, around this whole issue we're talking about is the very definition of free choice or the nature of a morally accountable choice. So as we think about this, I'm going to again use some terms, but I think these terms are helpful for us to navigate both the big theological issues, but I think the terms are helpful because they help refine our personal understanding of how we read Scripture, how we think about God, how God works, and how we think about theology. So my submission here is that the libertarian approach, which says which defines free choice a certain way, is inadequate. So what is the definition of free choice? It would be something like, free choice is when a person has the ability to freely choose any option. Um, So... The, this view of free choice would say that what I've just said about free choice is not genuine free choice. Think If your Bible is still open to John 8 here, um, they would say, my explanation is not satisfactory because someone who doesn't have the ability to choose otherwise doesn't have a genuine ability to choose. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk um, a little more about the dynamics of choice and our fallen human nature next week. I'm going to go into a little more detail and, and look at how Scripture talks about, as it were, how our hearts are, how we're spiritually dead, how we're spiritually blinded, and how the devil 
has a, as it were, power to blind our eyes. I'm going to go into a little more detail. At this point, I just want to stay a little more high level. And I just want to think about this definition of choice. Whether to say choice is the ability to choose any option is a good definition of choice. So let me say this again. What I'm trying to get at here is how does God lead us to conceive of and think about human choice? And my proposition is that Scripture indicates not the libertarian proposal that free choice is the ability to choose any option. So... I'm going to go at this a number of different ways. Firstly, I want to consider um, God's choice to save. And um, as I think about God's choice to save, this is connecting um, to the libertarian view of free choice. Let me just go back here. So the, the libertarian, let me just say this again. So the, the libertarian view of free choice is that a choice is only a genuine choice if there's the ability to choose any option. And that is not the way Scripture talks about choice. In this view, the libertarian view, because m- the human has the um, ultimate choice of their salvation then their view of God's work is that when God knows in advance what a human will will choose, then he sees that in advance, he knows that in in advance, and his purpose to redeem is ultimately based on their choice. But we're going to see what the scriptures say of God's choice. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Colossians 3. Colossians 3 and verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Who are we? We're God's, we're we're as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 1 Thessalonians 4, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. Um, Pastor Joe spent some time on this, I guess it was last year, um, when he started 1 Thessalonians. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So, The question we're asking is, how does God reveal, how does Scripture lead us to consider this issue of choice? And I'm proposing a certain reading of Scripture, and I'm presenting the the libertarian view, because that's what we need to engage with. I think that's uh, the inclination of our thinking, and that's where we need to bring, I think, clarity. So... The libertarian understanding of choice with regards people, how do people choose? A genuine human choice is one which uh, gives you any, which allows you to choose any option. That is a genuinely free choice. 
that can't be equally applied within the libertarian system. Now, you have to put your thinking caps on here a little, but I want to stretch you a little because I think this is a very important thing to consider. The proposal, the libertarian proposal, is that for people to genuinely choose, they must be able to choose anything. This or that. But the view within the libertarian system, their view of God's choice in salvation, is that God's choice is based on God's knowledge of human choice. In which case, then, God doesn't actually have a genuinely free choice on their terms. I'm not trying to take theological cheap shots here. All I'm trying to say is, we need to allow Scripture to tell us, to define for us, the nature of choice. And and we ought not to impose upon Scripture a definition of moral responsibility or human choice that God does not provide for us. God knows us better than we do. God created us in his image. He knows our makeup. He knows our moral nature. He is a certain being, and he has created us to relate to him in a certain way. And we must submit our understanding of who we are, how we function, and how we relate to God to his revelation. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a minute, and I I, I might be risking something here. Um, do you have any questions particularly about this slide? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I don't know what you mean by couldn't choose a sixth. I think that's a... Uh, it sounds reasonable, but then we are having to qualify the kind of restraints and how those restraints function in a particular person's set of events or situations. And when we introduce the idea of constraints, um, we are somehow altering the way we think about the freedom to choose. Because we're saying that this person does have freedom to choose this much, but they don't have freedom to choose. There is some constraint in that freedom. There are a few libertarians who would think about free choice in a different way. They would qualify in different ways. But I think the majority of libertarians would conceive of free choice as the simple definition would be the ability to choose any option. Yeah. Yeah, Josh. Uh, 
So, so I, I'm, I, my mind was wondering as you were talking, what was the specific element of your question? And so you're asking, do they, do they have a genuine choice? So I'm, I'm going to submit, I believe it is a genuine choice, but I'm not sure that fulfills the definition of being able to freely choose any option because they have lots of clothes and you've restricted. They're not actually free to wear anything. Right. But trying to, trying, to, trying to key into your illustration, it's, it's that you have restricted. They, they don't actually have free choice because you said you can only choose this or this. So, they, it's a, so I would submit that is a genuine choice, and I would call it free choice within a compatibilistic framework, but that is not the definition of free choice within a libertarian framework. Does that make sense? Okay. Matt, I see your question. I'm not sure I want you to ask me. <laughs> Go ahead. Great. Yes, that's great. Uh, a good theological term. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, the uh, possibility of contrary choice. A or B, no constraint. You're free to choose A and B. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, Brad. Um, I think it would be fair to say this is dealing with the moral realm, moral responsibility, and moral choice. So you stop them, the libertarian movement, at just behavior based. Their freedom of choice doesn't even guide their behavior. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure um, I've I, I read somebody from that persuasion um, who would venture beyond thinking about our moral makeup, our moral decisions as it relates to how we function before God. Yeah. So would that be a contradiction then? If you have freedom of choice, why wouldn't that be in everything? Um, yeah, I think, I think from, from my perspective, I think it is somewhat of a contradiction. From their perspective, it would just be, well, these, have, these pertain to the moral dimension and the physical realm doesn't function the same way. And I'm happy to grant that distinction to them if they, they want to make it. I mean, um, I, I, I want to... I mean, we could, you could really nitpick each other's systems down, and, and I want to kind of stay higher level. I, I'm, if, if, if we're having a discussion, that... I'm not sure that would be, be helpful, but, but 
from my perspective, I would say um, the physical realities do somewhat reflect something of the spiritual realm, which we'll get into next week. Yeah. Wait, I've got a lot. Of, okay, uh, you've got lots. Of, I see lots of questions. I'm sorry. I see the time. I want to get through some material. So bombard me at the end, okay? I'm sorry. Um, I'm not even sure I can get it through here. Um, so I also want to talk about God's choice. How does God's God? How do we view God's choice? God, the holy God. Um, he is righteous and holy. He has a will and a purpose, and everything he does is according to his holy nature. Um, is that just the same slide again? Okay, here we go. So the, we would say the holy God freely acts according to his nature. We might say he doesn't have the freedom. I want to be very careful how I say this. I was talking to my wife about this, and, and she uh, um, helpfully said, make sure you qualify this, and maybe she might have said, don't say it. But <laughs> I, I didn't quite say it this way. So um, we, we think of the holy God freely acts. We, we, we would say God does whatever he wants to do. But he doesn't have the freedom to do anything. He doesn't have the freedom, and I want to be careful how I say this, to act in unrighteousness. And for that, we are greatly thankful. We depend upon the God who constantly acts according to his nature. Um, he freely acts. And everything that he does is in this perfect conformity to his holy wisdom and purpose. So however we think about choice, and I, I want the scriptures to kind of shape how we do this, as we think about the way God functions, and, and we would say God functions in a morally worthy way. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of, uh, of our acceptance, of our, uh, of our praise for how he acts. And, and everything he does, he's doing in an unconstrained way, like there's no one forcing him to do something. But everything he does, he does out of the fullness of his nature. And this is a morally worthy choice. Um, and then I also want us to reflect on the eternal state. Returning to this theme of worship. We are looking for, forward to eternity, heaven on earth. Why? No sin, no suffering, no grief. Oh, oh, the joy of no tears. We will never have the fear of sin or being sinned against. What glorious, beautiful freedom that will be. But it is not false worship we will genuinely be worshiping we will genuinely be expressing i'm going to use the word deliberately a little provocatively here we will genuinely be expressing a free choice to worship god in his fullness so however we think about the word choice we need to think about it in terms that work with the way scripture uses it which works with the way we think about God's morally glorious actions and our response of worship all through eternity, that these are not robotic acts on our behalf in eternity. It is genuine worship, though we cannot but worship. It is genuine worship even though we cannot sin. 
and it will be glorious, and it will be good. And this is the way God has created us to respond. Okay, just um, one or two final comments. And again, I want us to be careful um, how we think about Scripture and how we reason. Um, It seems intuitively true that if we say God is sovereign and so determines or chooses who will be saved, then whatever we do, we don't have freedom of choice. That is, we are not morally responsible. I think this statement feels intuitively reasonable. And I think the reason it feels intuitively reasonable or intuitively obvious is that we assume our experience of action and causality is the same kind of relationship between action and causality between the creator and creation. So we view our choice, as it were, our, our, the causality of a decision and the making of a decision and how those things relate in time, in our moral action and acting in this world. We think about that in the same way that we think about God's relating to creation. So it's a, I think it's a natural human intuitive thing to say, and I want us to figure out why it is naturally intuitive to say that. If we go to, uh, um, we were in Psalm 29 a few weeks ago, would it be true in light of Psalm 29 to say, if God determines storms, then weather patterns don't cause it? I think that's the same kind of reasoning. And I, I want to think about why, why that's wrong. Do, do weather patterns cause storms? Yeah, you can look at landmass temperatures, water currents, um, air pressure movements. Is it in the northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere? Which way is the, is the stuff circling? Um, what kind of um, cycle is the sun in? Where's the earth in its orbit? You can, go, you can look at so many factors and they all contribute to this storm. And it is right to say the weather caused the storm. But it is also right to say that God caused the storm. Now, now the relationship between God and the storm, we can't perceive. We don't understand that causal relationship. Because all we see are the causal relationships within creation. But as we read Psalm 29, we, sh- we say this, right? Why was there a storm? In fact, we say we, 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 we stay on the creational element too long. We don't say God caused it. That seems kind of wrong. But we should. We should as quickly say God caused the storm um, as the weather patterns. We hold them together. So we speak of the primary cause, which is God, because he's the sovereign king. The primary cause is, we might say, is remote. There's some theological words here. Is remote or, or not observable. It's distant. It's and the secondary cause, think of the storm, the weather patterns, that's near. It's, it's close. It's observable. We can, we can record air pressures and cloud covers and sun cycles and all that kind of stuff. So what is the cause of the storm? The cause of the storm is God, primary cause. Ultimately, why was there a storm? Because God. That is the ultimate and primary cause of the storm. And there are secondary causes to the storm. We think about Colossians 1.16. By him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. We don't see the primary cause of this creation holding together. 
all we see is, how can I say this, glimpses of what we think might be the secondary cause of how things hold together. Like subatomic physics, and they just keep going down, and they still find mystery and create more theories, and it is amazing. We're still trying to figure out some of the secondary proximate or near causes of our existence. So why do you exist? You drink water, you eat food, cells are cranking, we know it's chemicals and um, atoms and the elements of nature, all of that's true. But why do you exist? Because today, Jesus, the creator, wills you to exist right now. And we should say both of those things together. So I want to look at scripture here. I'm going to quickly go here. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, because of time, I'm not going to do much for the context. I just want you to write this down. Would you go back, please, to Acts 2. Acts 2.23. This is the sermon, Pentecost sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So how does scripture talk? When we see these things brought together, it says this and this. Why did it happen? Because God planned it. Why did it happen? Because you did it. Um, We see this in Luke 22. Jesus is speaking here. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And we see that pattern throughout the Gospel of John. The religious leaders keep trying to arrest Jesus and he escapes through the midst and he moves on and it doesn't happen until Jesus says to Satan, Judas, go and do quickly. The betrayal is at the command of Jesus. And this is a key theological point that John makes in the gospel. And so Jesus sums this up for us again. How should we speak? We should speak like Jesus. God determines and the person who acts is morally responsible. And you're like, I I want more. And we, we need to follow the model that God gives us in how to talk about these things. Don't diminish the sovereign purpose and decree of God to determine to do a certain thing ultimately demonstrated in Jesus' death and resurrection. Don't in any way diminish God's authority in that. And at the same time, don't in any way diminish the moral responsibility and accountability of the choices that were made in human time and space to bring about the death of Jesus. And I don't believe we can ultimately, this is where we say God's ways are inscrutable. You can't fully bring this together. When we do bring it together, we need to be sure we don't minimize the bold declaration of one or the other. So I just want to compare this to this statement. If we say God is sovereign and so determines choosers who will be saved, then whatever we do, we don't have freedom of choice. And I want you to see that Luke twenty two twenty two as a as an example of biblical theology is is the example of how we are to think and reason and speak about these things. And so I know this is a fancy word; uh, it wasn't around during the uh, Reformation, but I think it's a helpful word. Luke twenty two twenty two is a summarization of what we're talking about here, and that is. That God's determining, absolutely a sovereign ruler, 
and our moral responsibility are compatible. And the ultimate way we get there is not by fully understanding all the causal links, but by submitting to the, direct de- de- to the declarations of God. I want to conclude then with the Westminster Confession, which kind of pulls some of this together, and then we're done. God's eternal decree. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And so as yet thereby, neither is God the author of sin. It's important. So, so the fact that there is sin in this world is part of God's plan. But don't charge God with sin. So he's not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of creatures. We make morally responsible decisions. We, we make morally accountable dis- choices. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. We are functioning in this world. And God holds us accountable to the things we think, and the things we believe, and the things we do as we relate to him as the sovereign creator. And there is nothing that happens in this world that is outside of his decretive will. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, our, 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 our brains itch, um, crave a resolution that you don't ultimately give. We join with Paul and we are amazed and we declare how unsearchable are your ways, how unscrutable they are. And we want to join with Paul in a response of worship. You, O Lord, are the great and glorious God, worthy of our love and trust. Help us to be faithful in those areas you've called us to be faithful in. Help us to submit to your word, to carefully understand your word. And may our lives be lived in such a way that you are glorified. And may it be that through our lives, others will learn to worship you as well. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.